This past week, some of you uh, worked 40 hours or more. Um, if you work those kind of hours, you just think about it for 50 weeks um, out of the year. And if you did that for 40 years, you have worked somewhere around 80,000 hours. Some of us uh, spend those hours working in our homes, some uh, in places of business, some in schools, some in the halls of government, and some, well, where you just can't say. Um, work is, is such a significant part of our lives. It is perhaps the thing that we spend uh, our waking hours doing the most. And some of us may feel at times it's the thing that we like to do the least. Work is, uh, is a significant part of our lives. But, but some people mistakenly think that we get our significance from work. Uh, some people mistakenly think that our work is actually not significant. It's just something that we have to kind of do in this life. As Christians, we believe that it is, that it is our God who gives our work significance. And that is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from 2 Thessalonians chapter two, sorry, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Wherever you are in those perhaps 80,000 years, 80,000 hours, 80,000 years, how about that? Uh, 80,000 hours of work. I think you'll, you'll get there, by the way, at some point, but more on that in a little bit. Wherever you are in those 80,000 hours of, of work, let me encourage you to think of those Hours as hours and hours in which you have the privilege or have had the privilege to glorify God, to reflect his character. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles open to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to begin there in verse 6. We're looking at verses 6 through 15. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there in the, the pews, I think you can find the passage on page 990. And while you're turning there, allow me just to give you kind of a little bit of background on, on Paul's letter. First, how did, how did Paul's letter come about? Well, Jesus came, God's one and only Son came, and He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and He died on the cross, and He rose from the grave, and He then sent His disciples out, and they started churches all over the place. Uh, and Paul and Timothy and Silvanus, the, the men whose names head this letter, they wrote this letter, they started this church in Thessalonica, and they were actually forced to leave. Because of Paul's opposition, uh, because of opposition to Paul's gospel teaching, uh, he was forced to leave Thessalonica. And Paul, he was, he was in his first letter, he describes he was torn away uh, from these brothers and sisters in Christ when they were young in the faith. In this church, they were left on their own to, to grow and face several difficulties. Fellow brothers and sisters of Christ in the congregation had died um, between the time of Paul's writing, his, uh, his leaving the church and writing his first letter. Um, the, the church was persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And, and the Thessalonians, well, they faced kind of the normal afflictions, the hardships that we all face uh, living in this fallen world. All of that would have made life difficult for this young church. But in between the time, it seems, of his first letter and his second letter back to this church, some strange teaching had kind of come into the church. There were people saying that the day of the Lord had already come. In other words, they were saying uh, that Jesus had already returned. Uh, this was contrary to Paul's teaching, and this was what prompted Paul to write his second letter, this letter that we're studying together this morning. He wrote it probably about 50 or 51 AD. 
Paul urged this church in Thessalonica not to be shaken or alarmed, not to be unsettled, disturbed by this strange teaching because the day of the Lord had in fact not come. Uh, they, they could make it through. These, these Christians told them they could make it through these difficulties. They could weather this storm and stand firm. They could make it through because of their election to salvation, Paul said in this letter. Instead of being alarmed, they could be assured of their heavenly hope because God had ordained in eternity past that they would reach or obtain glory. After Paul had given them this assurance, he lent them his confidence and he, he asked them to actually pray for him. And he prayed for them. And this morning, Lord willing, we're going to hear Paul give the Thessalonians his final admonitions and commands of the letter. We'll study his, his prayer, his closing prayer next week, Lord willing. But here we're looking at the final admonitions and commands that Paul gives. And it's still intimately related to this issue of, of the day of the Lord and whether or not it had come. Paul essentially commands the Thessalonians to keep working, as we just sang, until Jesus comes. That's what these verses are about. So read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15 now. Paul writes, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not, accord, not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. We're going to study this final section, uh, well, this is not the final section, this second to last section of Paul's uh, letter under four headings. And I'll give you each of those headings along the way. Let's begin with our first heading, our first point of the sermon, Paul's concern. And usually I kind of walk you through the verses, uh, but today I kind of want us to start in the middle. What's Paul, what's the central concern that Paul has in these verses and you can see Paul's central concern there in verses 10 and 11. So look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 3. Paul writes, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Paul's central concern is pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's not simply summarized in these two verses, but as we saw a moment ago, all of the verses that surround these two are kind of suffused with this concern. Paul and his companions have heard that some 
in the Thessalonian congregation have begun to walk in idleness. Contrary to Paul's teaching and example, he has now heard that some have stopped working with their hands and have begun working with their mouths. What has happened? Why has this happened? Uh, And why is this a concern? What's happened? Well, verse 10 makes clear that the problem is that some of the Thessalonians uh, not working is, is actually more than skin deep. It was a problem that was under their rib cage. I don't know if you noticed that. Did you, did you notice it was a, a problem of the heart? Look at verse 10. Paul repeats his command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul's concern, as we'll see, is deeper than a mere ability to work. This is about the heart's orientation toward work. Which is to say that an idle heart is oriented away from work. The slothful in the Thessalonian church were not willing to work. They didn't want to work. Can you identify with that sometimes? Yes, sir. Uh, aren't, aren't there some days that you don't want to work or maybe some kinds of work that you don't want to do? Our hearts can actually kind of lead us in and out of idleness, can't they? If that's the case, um, one reason for that may be that our hearts are misdirected. Our our work is not fundamentally about our work. It's not even fundamentally about eating. If it's true that if we don't work, I mean, let me say this. It's true that if we don't work, we're not going to eat. But as Christians, our work says something fundamental about our own hearts and our relationship with God. Uh, Remember what Paul said in his letter to the Colossians about work? Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or in deeds, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then just a few verses later in chapter 3, Paul says, beginning in verse 22, Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. You see, as a Christian, if you're not willing to work, then you are not willing to serve Christ. I think that's part of the reason that Paul keeps invoking the name of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his commands to the slothful throughout these verses. Jesus is either honored or dishonored in how you staple and fold and collate a stack of papers. Jesus is either honored or dishonored in whatever you do. You either reflect his character in your work or you don't. And think about Jesus' work for a moment. Throughout his life and ministry, especially in John's gospel, Jesus actually spoke of his mission in life as work. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, My father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus conceived of his mission as a kind of work to be accomplished. And think if Jesus for one moment failed to honor and glorify God in that work. Do you know what that would mean for your salvation? It would mean that you have no salvation. But that didn't happen. 
in every moment of Jesus' saving work, which was every moment of his life, he gave himself fully to the honor of God the Father. There was not a moment of idleness in the work of Jesus Christ. And we who follow him and claim his name as Christians must imitate him in our work. That's Paul's concern. Now, why has this happened? Why is this scenario kind of unfolded in Thessalonica? Why are they struggling with this? Well, let's remember the main reason that Paul wrote this letter, this second letter to the Thessalonians, was to refute the false teaching that the day of the Lord had already come, that Jesus had already returned. If that had happened, if Jesus had already returned, then what else is there to do but to kind of wait around for Jesus to kind of conduct cleanup here on the earth? Well, that scenario, if true, could lead some to walk in idleness. There's another scenario, another misunderstanding that could lead some to walk in idleness. The Apostle Paul taught that though Jesus had not yet returned, that Jesus' return was imminent. He taught that in his, his first letter, and he taught it in various phrases, actually here in his second letter. Jesus could return at any time. And this too could lead some to think to themselves, well, since Jesus is going to come back at, at any moment, uh, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we go. Jesus' return really is imminent. He really could return at any point in time. But far from encouraging laziness, Jesus' return ought to encourage us to work. The truth is, the inclination to walk in idleness for these reasons is based upon a bad misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching and the Apostle Paul's teaching. In, in Matthew's Gospel, specifically in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus taught his disciples about how they were to live while they waited for his return. Jesus told two parables in Matthew chapter 25 to explain what, what faithfulness between the time of his ascension, his return to God the Father, uh, and his, his return back to earth in, in judgment and bringing his people to himself. Jesus told the parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25. I'd encourage you to go, go ahead and read those parables later this, this afternoon. Uh, but let me just give you the kind of bottom line on what they teach. Through those two parables, Jesus explained that his disciples and we are to be busy about the master's business doing what he commands. That is what faithfulness looks like until Jesus returns. For, for the ten virgins in that parable, it meant keeping oil in their lamps and thus being prepared for the master's return, being wise about how to live in this world. For the men who were entrusted with the resources, the talents, they were to actually put those talents, those resources, to work. Faithfulness and wisdom looks like doing what the master commands and to keep on doing what the master commands until the master returns. Our master may be delayed in his return, but that does not mean that we may desist in doing his will. Faithlessness means sitting on your hands and doing nothing, being idle. Faithfulness is serving. Faithlessness is self-serving. Faithfulness means serving the master in his household. But this misunderstanding of Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching had led to leeching in Thessalonica. In his first letter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, the Apostle Paul saw this idle way of life as an emerging concern. 
among the Thessalonians. And there, he actually instructed the Thessalonians to admonish the idol, to rebuke them. Now, when we think of idleness, we think of of laziness or slothfulness. But I think Paul has that and something deeper in view here. Remember, it's, it's a heart orientation as well. This person's way of life is, is marked by disorder. We think of an idle and lazy person. It's kind of exactly what you think of. A person's life who's disorganized, perhaps because they don't care. Uh, their apathy has led to a kind of anarchy, so to speak. It's more of a, it, it, but it's, it's more than a behavioral problem. It really is a heart problem and how we conceive of life lived under the lordship of Jesus Christ. What the idol may not realize is that their way of life is not only self-destructive, but it is also destructive to the church's witness. The, large surrounding, the larger surrounding community could potentially look on this idol individual and think, so, so this is how a Christian lives? This guy claims to be a Christian. This is how he lives? Well, if that's how Christians, I don't want to have anything to do with Christians and with Christ. While we as Christians don't live for the glory of man, we are called to live in such a way that reflects the very character of God. Gracious, disciplined, self-controlled, in order, caring, and considerate of others. The characteristic of being considerate especially comes into view when we consider that some were not busy at work, but busy bodies. Not working can be a problem, and it can have consequences And those consequences can often spill over from an individual and have an impact on the wider community. Idleness can be a kind of a meddlesome disease. That's what this word kind of idle actually gets at. It's meddling and interfering. Um, As I said, it it can be a meddlesome disease. Think of, um, let me just try and paint a picture for a moment. Uh, Think of a non-working idler named Jimmy. Uh, and he turns up to, uh, to, to his Christian friend Lance's workplace. Lance is at work and he says, Hey Lance, check out this funny YouTube video I saw the other day. Uh, and then, then Lance sees it and then he, he remembers this own funny YouTube video. Uh, and he asks Jimmy to watch it. And there you have idleness has spread. And orientation away from work has grown from not just one, but two, uh, involving meddling in, in, other, in another person's life. Uh, this was part of Paul's concern. Laziness and loose lips were part of Paul's concern. And this was going on in the lives of some people who were calling themselves Christians. Paul is not simply concerned that slothfulness is occurring in the world. No, Paul is especially concerned that laziness and loose lips were occurring in the church. How Christians live, both individually and corporately, matters. It matters so much that Paul intentionally left the Thessalonians an example in which they were to follow. This is what we turn to think about in our second point, Paul's conduct. So we've looked at Paul's concern. Now we're going to look at Paul's conduct. Paul speaks of his conduct in verses 7 to 9. Read verses 7 to 9 there. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we do not have the right, that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Here Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his conduct, conduct among them while he was with them. In fact, Paul has given them this reminder before. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, Paul mentioned this. Keep your eyes on, on verses 7 and 8 of, of our text. And listen as I read from Paul's first letter from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul writes, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. Night and day. Not a burden. Paul reiterates those phrases, those themes. Paul made clear that he worked night and day, providing his own living and income so that the Thessalonians wouldn't have to do that for him. In between making tents, that's what Paul did for a living, he shared the gospel and his life with the Thessalonians. And this must have been exhausting for Paul. But what a profound gift it was to the church in Thessalonica. Paul gave of himself day in and day out, night in and night out, so that the Thessalonians would grow and prosper, so that they would know what it looked like to work and to work faithfully. He gave of himself and he didn't take anything from the Thessalonians, even though he says he had the right to do so. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, Paul could have demanded pay from the young church. There Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Pastors have a right to pay, Paul said. Those who do claim this privilege ought to work especially hard for the sake of the flock. I'm preaching to myself here. Uh, you know... I need to work especially hard, and you as a congregation have a right to inquire as to how I spend my time. Every so often, the elders of the church actually ask me to give an account of how I spend my time. And I think that is wise and caring, not just for me, but for you too as a church. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was unique. Though Paul could have claimed pay from the Thessalonians, he didn't. He was so sensitive to what kind of example they would need in his absence. And he gave them that example of diligence. Far from being a burden, Paul was a blessing to them. And that was an example that they were to follow. It's an example that all of the non-staff pastors and elders of this church are following in right now. Did you realize that? Brothers and sisters, you have three elders who are not on staff, but they're pastors here in this church. Elders in this congregation, and they imitate Paul in this way. They work night and day. They give themselves to loving and serving their families. And then they give themselves to loving and serving you, praying for you, meeting with you, encouraging you. And the time doesn't cost you anything, but the time is costly. And that is okay. These brothers give you that time with joy. It's their delight to serve you. Do you know why? Because they love you. Because they love you just like Paul loved the Thessalonians. And they want to give you an example. Let's give thanks to God that he's given us elders who are a blessing. Now, having considered Paul's concern and Paul's conduct, let's turn now and consider 
our next point. Paul's command to the slothful. Here we're getting into Paul's commands in this section. Look at uh, verse 12. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Now, such persons, Paul's addressing the, the idlers. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Here, as I said, Paul turns to address the slothful members of the Thessalonian church. And we must remember that Paul is addressing the church. After all, Paul is commanding and encouraging these persons in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Invoking the person of every Christian's faith has several implications. Paul, by linking Jesus Christ to his command, in doing so, we're reminded of the authority that the Lord Jesus Christ entrusted to Paul as an apostle to communicate divine truth. Paul has authority from the Savior to give this command. And this only further underscores the seriousness of Paul's concern. It does something else too. It calls for self-reflection on the part of the Thessalonians. By linking Jesus Christ to his command, Paul is implicitly reminding the believers in Thessalonica that they are not their own but that they are bought with a price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Having been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they cannot go living, go on living under their own commands. Instead, they must submit themselves to Christ's rule in their lives, given from the Apostle Paul. That will be seen as they submit to the one that Jesus Christ directly commissioned, Paul to teach the world and to teach believers what it looked like to trust Him and follow Him. Now, friend, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope that you know Christians who obey this command. I hope that you know Christians and the Christians that you know, I hope that they work like Paul worked. I hope that they work hard and they work unto the glory of God. If they do, it's because they trust in Jesus work for them and that they have submitted to living under Jesus' rule. Friend, do you know that you were made to live under God's good and gracious authority? Did you know that the Lord made you to, to love Him, to know Him, to obey Him, to worship Him, and even to work for Him? God is the author of our lives and He has the right to express His good authority over us by and through giving us commands like this one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. And the truth is, is that we've not obeyed God's commands as we ought. You and I and every person in this world has sinned against the author of our lives. And just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, we have all decided to live our own way. And in doing so, we have dishonored the Lord. By our sin, we have said to the author of our lives, I reject your authority. We have told him that he does not have the right to rule us. We have rejected this command that we're reading about in 2 Thessalonians and others. Our sin is an offense against him. And for our sin, we deserve to be punished. In fact, the Bible says that the wages or the payment rightly due to sin, to put it in terms of work, is death. Instead of working to honor the Lord, we've all worked in sin. And Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that death 
is the minimum wage. Because we have sinned against the holy and eternal God, we deserve to face His holy and eternal punishment for our sin forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is this, is that God promised to send a Savior to rescue sinners from the punishment that they deserve. And God did send that Savior and He completed that work. He sent His one and only most beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we have not lived, a life uh, that was perfect and sinless and perfectly obedient to the glory of God the Father. Though he was without sin, Jesus gave up his life for sinners on the cross. He died bearing the punishment that was due to the sins of all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that he honored the name of his Father. That he completed the work of salvation. And sinners can be saved by coming to Jesus Christ and putting their faith in Him and in His work on their behalf. Friend, will you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ? If you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, please do find me at the door after the service. Talk with the friend or family member that you came with here this morning about the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Let's think just a little bit further about what Paul is so powerfully commanding here in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that every Christian, by their faith in Jesus for salvation, should have been joyful and willing to do. Paul is commanding and encouraging them to repent, to turn away from being idle and busybodies, and instead to do their work quietly and to own their own living. This is similar to what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. He urged the Thessalonians to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we have instructed you. Both in 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Paul encourages quietness. He wants the Thessalonians to be ambitious about doing their work quietly. This was such a necessary command for those who have been ambitious about not working. This was necessary. They were being busy bodies. In Paul's first letter, he actually specifically instructed the Thessalonians to work with their hands. And Paul may have that same kind of work in view here, as that was the kind of work he did and just reminded them of through his example. Paul, he he did manual labor in making those tents. Uh, And this actually cut against the grain of Greco-Roman society. Usually, household servants were the ones who would take up manual labor. The surrounding culture held the idea of working with your hands to be low and degrading work. But the truth is, no honest labor is undignified in the sight of God. What did Jesus do? He did the work of a household servant when he washed the feet of his disciples. That was dignified and glorious for us. I think that we ought to esteem all work that is not sinful. The reality is that we live in a culture that esteems and prefers some jobs over others. And those who work these jobs that our culture does not esteem as highly are so often mistreated. But they are made in God's image. 
And they're working and they're reflecting the very character of God in their work. And we ought to honor them. Our culture, you know, usually values jobs based upon the income that comes out of them. But I don't think that is how the Lord calls us to think about work. You know, in in this regard, I I think that many of the women in this congregation who work at home, uh, your work is so undervalued in our world. And sadly, we who benefit from it, undervalued at times too. And I'm sorry for that. Uh, Wives and moms, keep giving yourself to this work. Know that the Lord is pleased. And I know that you're in an environment that you can't help but work. Uh, You don't have any time to be idle often. There's too much to do. Realize that even in your work, you're setting a wonderful example for your children. Your work reveals your love for God. And parents, let's remember how the world thinks about work and how our Lord thinks about work. Let's be sure to teach our children about the kind of work that God values. Work done to the glory of His name. And let's be content with whatever kind of work our Lord sends our children into. Let's teach them to work and to avoid idleness. Children, youth, young adults... Did you know that this concern about idleness applies to you too? Did you know that your attitude towards work, whether that be schoolwork, homework, housework, or any other kind of work, reveals something about your desire to follow Jesus? Maybe you think it shouldn't be your job to vacuum after dinner, or do your laundry, or clean up your room, or mow the grass. But let me encourage you to view these and other responsibilities as opportunities to work unto the Lord. You're not ultimately serving man. You're not ultimately serving your parents. Ultimately, if we call ourselves Christians, we are all serving the Lord Jesus when we work. So work hard and work for Jesus' glory. Some of the Thessalonians likely needed to find a job and take a job. They needed to earn their own living as Paul says at the end there of verse 12. In other words, they needed to not be a parasite on the church or the wider community. They needed to provide for themselves. And Paul clearly understands that those whom he was addressing were able to work. Those who were able to work ought to work and work diligently. Disobedience to this command from Paul is nothing less than disobedience to Jesus Christ. And it brings disrepute upon his name. Now, we also need to recognize that sometimes our brothers and sisters might work multiple jobs. And even then, it might still be difficult for them to make ends meet. Through the benevolence of of the church, we can come alongside these brothers and sisters in Christ and help them. And I do not believe that we ought to consider them idle, simply because they're not able to earn their own living, even though they're trying. The, The truth is, is that at some point, the Lord will temporarily call us out of the workforce through age or physical limitations or for other reasons. Should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry, that day will come for us all. The question is, will we be idle in that new season of life? We may have left the workforce, but that doesn't mean we should stop working for the Lord Jesus. Will we find ways to be productive and work for God's kingdom? Another truth is is that uh, sometimes there are not better or more or higher paying jobs available. 
And our brothers and sisters who are willing to work and trying to do so ought not be considered idle. Remember that Paul's concern about idleness is not fundamentally economically oriented. It's spiritually heart-oriented. You can be idle and get paid six figures. You can be idle because your heart is not oriented to work, but away from work. Paul's command applies to us whether formally in work or out of work. It applies to the overworked and the underworked. At times, slothfulness emerges in all of our hearts. And of it, we ought to repent and get back to working quietly and honoring the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The slothful ones were not the only ones in Thessalonica who received commands from Paul. The faithful ones also received commands from Paul. The faithful need instruction and encouragement to keep being faithful. And this is what we turn to consider in our next point. Paul's commands to the faithful. Paul's commands to the faithful. And let's begin by looking at the very first verse of this whole section. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Now skip down to verses 14 and 15. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. From what we've examined so far in our passage, it's clear that uh, this is the principle, verse 6, uh, th- this is the principle and kind of overarching command of the, of the whole passage, right? Why would Paul encourage Christians to keep away from fellow Christians who are walking in idleness? And what does that look like practically in the life of the church? Well, Paul cannot mean that faithful brothers must totally and completely avoid slothful brothers. Paul cannot mean that we shun a person or fail to have interaction with them altogether. For he says there in verse 15 that he needs to be warned as a brother. You've got to speak to the guy. You're going to warn him. And if he's a member of the family, well, you can't like avoid your family all the time. Paul's command to keep away in verse 6 and his command to have nothing to do with him in verse 14 mean that we cannot have the kind of interaction with this brother which would lead us to idleness. So he's being idle and we can't be sucked in. We can't, can't take on that disease. Instead, we must have the kind of interaction with him which leads to repentance and encourages him to walk away from idleness while keeping away from idleness ourselves. And while this is not some corporate action taken by the church, it is lived out corporately by the church in our relationships with one another. I think that Paul is is very practically talking about how you interact with an idle brother in the midst of your work. So remember that kind of admittedly silly example I gave you earlier about Lance and Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was the non-working idler uh, who turned up to visit his Christian friend Lance at work and encouraged him in idleness by inviting him to watch a funny YouTube video. Uh, I think if Lance were to apply uh, Paul's teaching here, Lance might say something like, I'm sorry, brother. I can't watch that right now. I, I've got I've to focus on my work because I work for Jesus Christ. I, I need to get back to work because God warns us against idleness. What kind of witness am I going to give to my coworkers if I'm slothful in my work? 
I need to honor my employer and not steal time from him. More than that, I need to imitate and honor Jesus with excellent work. Let me encourage you to use your free time to find work, brother, or get back to work. While you're out of work, think about trying to apply for a job, maybe just once a day. I need to get back to work. Now, maybe you find uh, that last little bit about finding a job kind of self-righteous of Lance. Maybe it is. Uh, But some kind of warning, admonishment, and encouragement needs to be given. That's a command from Paul. And honestly, that's usually the part that we're tempted to avoid because of our own fear of man. But that concern aside, do you see how such a response is actually keeping away from a brother who walks in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that the Thessalonians have received from Paul? Do you see how it amounts to taking note of that brother's idleness? I know what you're doing, even pointing it out in the form of a warning. Paul says we must do this. Do you see how that kind of response does not regard him as an enemy, but continues to treat him as a brother? One more question on this subject. Do you also see how the honor and glory of Jesus remains the focus of work and the warning? Because that is what it's all about. Our work is all about Jesus. In most of these verses, Paul command, and Paul's commands about work have been oriented mostly in a negative direction. But in verse 13, we do get a positive command for the faithful brethren in Thessalonica. In verse 13, Paul says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Now let's be honest. It's hard to be faithful when others are being unfaithful. When friends at work are watching March Madness... It's hard, right, not to spend a few minutes here and there. In in those moments, we need to ask ourselves, am I stealing from my employer? Idleness is contagious, and we need to be on guard. But we also need to be positively giving ourselves to work. Paul encourages the Thessalonians not to grow weary in doing good in the midst of of this conversation about work. Did you know that work is good? Work is good. Before the fall, God made Adam and Eve to work. It would be too much to speculate that Adam sinned in a moment of idleness. But we do know this. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Before there was sin... There was work. Adam's life was to be characterized by work. And I even think that we should expect that our lives will be characterized by work in the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, in heavenly glory, we will almost certainly work. You weren't expecting God to permit idleness in heaven, were you? Let me just pause here and say a word about kind of the opposite problem of idleness in work that some of us may have. I suspect that many in our congregation struggle with the, the opposite problem of idolatry, of, of idleness. And it's the problem of idolatry of work from time to time. So I, I do think we need to be careful not to use this passage to justify the idol of work. 
We make our work an idol when it displaces Christ. When we misplace its significance and we disengage from the responsibilities that Jesus has entrusted to us. If you don't pray before you work, you misunderstand your strength and power. If you fail to remember that it is not your work, but your God who has given you your identity, you will exalt your work instead of God's Son. If you disengage or abdicate your responsibilities in your home or in the church because of your work, then work is ordering your life instead of the one who made you. Be on guard. We are not to grow weary of doing good. But if work has become an idol, we can be sure that we're not doing good. Given that idleness is kind of the the main melody line of this passage. I want to I get back to the question of why would Paul give this encouragement not to grow weary in doing good? I mentioned that one example, one, one explanation is that it's hard to be faithful while others are being slothful. But there's a more fundamental reason than that. It's a reason actually related to our salvation. Because of sin, work is actually hard. As uh, Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert point out in their book, The Gospel at Work, which I would happily commend to your reading, The Gospel at Work by Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert, uh, they write this. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands and rebelled against Him, work stopped being purely a reaping of God's abundance. Adam's sin and God's curse against it affected the very soil of the ground. And Traeger and Gilbert go on. Work became painful and necessary for Adam and Eve's very survival. Where once the earth had eagerly produced its fruit, almost holding it out with eager hands and begging Adam and Eve to take it. Now, after the fall, the earth became stingy. It withheld its riches. And the humans were forced to labor and painfully get them. Work has a tendency to wear us out and wear us down and it could be a massive source of frustration in our lives all because of the fall do you see why Paul might encourage believers not to grow weary of doing good and this is where I want us to conclude I want us to conclude by continuing to reflect on this question of why we should not grow weary of doing good in our work we should Work to keep doing good because we're reflecting the very character of God Himself, who in His work created the world that was good. Our work ought to testify to the creative work of God. We should not tire of doing good because Jesus never tired of His work of salvation. We work out of gratitude that Jesus did not stop working until our salvation was complete. This is what Jesus said in John 17, verse 4. I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus never tired of doing good until the work was complete and he could say, it is finished. We should not tire of doing good in our work because we are a people who are persuaded that Jesus' death and resurrection gives meaning and purpose and significance to our work. Now we see that God is at work in our work. 
through our work, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, He is making us more like Jesus. Through our work, God is actually using us to bless others. Remember why Paul worked in Thessalonica? We say, I, I, I left you an example. That was loving of Paul. In our work, we're actually loving others and blessing others. And why else did Paul do it? To imitate Jesus, who did not stop working. He did it out of love for Jesus. We work out of love for each other, our community, and love for God, ultimately. God is using our work to bless others, to provide for them, help them, teach them, encourage them. And Lord willing, through our work, God is showing others that we do not work for earthly masters, but a heavenly one. Finally, we should not grow weary of doing good in our work because we are a people who are persuaded that our work has only just begun and that through it, we are being prepared for our work in the new heavens and the new earth. Here, our work is filled with thorns and thistles. Here, our work still bears the marks of a fallen creation that is from time to time frustrated. But there, there in the new heavens and the new earth, our work will perfectly honor and glorify Jesus. And it will be our joy to work and glorify Him. No longer will our work be toilsome and burdensome. No longer will we be tempted to be idle, to avoid work. Because you see, heaven is where idleness and idolatry finally are put to death. No more will we be oriented away from work, but to it. Because through it, we bring glory to Him who finished the work of our salvation. Let's pray together.